Hello, my name's Darren and welcome to the Helpforce podcast. This week we're talking to Sir Tom Hughes-Hallett, the founder of Helpforce, talking about his experience of setting the organisation up and how volunteering exists in the NHS. We hope you enjoy it. So, Sir Tom, thank you very much for agreeing to do this, our very first Helpforce podcast, first of many, I hope. Oh, I'm delighted. I hope... I hope um... I hope we manage to interest people in what we're going to talk about to each other. And for me, it's really useful because obviously being a, a relatively new addition to the Helpforce family, there's a lot of stuff I don't actually know about. Mm. So this is a really good opportunity for me to hear it from the, uh, from the originator, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. really good. So, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, I think obviously some, one of the first things it would be really, really good to cover is, is how Helpforce came about. Mm. Not, not necessarily the mechanics of... Mm of how you created it, but there must have been a gap mm. that you saw mm-hmm. that you thought Help Force would fill. We've got a lot of organisations around the country that are involved in volunteering, but, but what was the gap that you saw? That's a, a, a really interesting question, and it's really good that we're sitting here in my office at the Chelsea and Westminster Foundation Trust Hospital, because um, it, it started in this room, actually. Oh, um, right, okay. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, it was sitting here as the chairman of a busy NHS trust uh, in 2015, uh, when I'd been chair for three years, and realising the magnitude of the task that faced the National Health Service. Right. Um, and um, as a very poor mathematician, uh, I nonetheless have some concept that equations are supposed to uh, balance, and it struck me that this particular equation was almost unbalanceable. Okay, what, what do you mean by that? Well, the equation was very simple. Um, the uh, we were faced, uh, we are, we continue to be faced in the NHS by a um, relentless growth in demand for our services. Yes, and every year we're assured by the commissioners that this year, a oh, great hospital. Um, you will not see more patients coming through because we've put in place care closer to home. Right. And year after year, in the six years I've been here, every year we have been asked to reduce our budget to, or rather to save money. We've had to take £25 million out of our bottom line every year. We've had to see varying between 5 and 10% more patients every year. And as everyone listening to this will know, retaining... Um, both doctors and nurses, and indeed other staff, yeah. uh, is not easy. So um, I, I was just sort of sitting here thinking, you know, don't just assume it's impossible. See if there's a solution. You know, what could we do to um, balance this equation? And I reflected that um, when I, I was I was chief executive of Marie Curie for twelve years, and uh, at Marie Curie I had four thousand staff and 10,000 volunteers, so more than two to one volunteers to staff. They were reliable, they were high value add, they were incredibly committed to the organisation, their absenteeism was almost zero, um, and they were kind of the life and soul of the place, because they really cared. I'm not saying the Marie Curie staff didn't care too, but it was an equal balance and both got on with each other very well. Meanwhile, back here, I have 6,000 staff, <laughs> and I had 100 and something volunteers. 
Okay, that's a different. And I just thought, what's, <laughs> what, what, what's going on? You know, if I mean, if the equation were to be, um, you know, if you, we were to stick with the maths, I should have at least twelve thousand volunteers in the hospital, and I've got some. I think it was about one hundred and seventy-five at the time, maybe yeah. a few more, but not much. So um, uh, that was twenty fifteen. Um, and um, I began to talk to people about it and say, can you explain to me why it is that we have so few volunteers in the NHS? And I very quickly realised that there was a gap yeah. uh, and that no one really knew the answer to that. And I think the expectation was that people wouldn't want to volunteer for the NHS. Well, how wrong they were. And the second point was, we made it, we didn't appreciate the volunteers we got, and we asked them to do things that were pretty marginal, mainly wayfinding, um, when often I found the patients knew the, out, the layout of our hospital better than the volunteers, actually, because they were here more often, uh, or pushing trolleys full of um, sugar-laden drinks and salt-laden crisps around people who were desperate trying to make better. Uh, and um, so, um, so um, I had the idea and went to see three people who I thought would tell me I was an idiot. One was the chief executive of the NHS, Simon Stevens. Yes. One was the chief executive of Public Health England, Duncan Selby. And the third one was Sir Jim Mackey, who ran Northumbria Healthcare. And all three of them said, it's a great idea. And um, Northumbria Healthcare are quite forward-thinking in they the way are, they approach yeah, things, aren't yeah. they? And Jim had been seconded to actually running the main health regulator, NHSI, for a couple right, of years. Okay. And so they lent their support to the concept. Um, no pounds and pence at that stage, but support and courage. That's how it got going. And, and it's interesting that a lot of the work that, and, and I'm aware of the work that Health Force has done to try and do those media campaigns to try and find the interest, the interest for volunteers in the NHS is overwhelming, isn't it? There's, there's yes. a lot of people out there. That I, I think it's, in a way, what the mail campaign showed us when we, in um, a few days, uh, it potentially increased the number of volunteers in the NHS from 76,000 to 110,000. Now, we haven't landed all of them, but no. we've landed many of them. But I think what I learned from that was there is a real appetite, uh, and from a very different population to what people probably expected. Okay. Uh, so, well, I think people think of the typical NHS volunteer as being predominantly female um, and predominantly retired. Um, and there is some truth in that. Um, I would say the backbone, the historic backbone of volunteering in the NHS, and it continues, is predominantly people who are retired, and the majority are indeed women. Um, but what we're seeing now, and what we saw in the male campaign, was a huge interest from the younger generation, and across all um, geographically incredibly diverse uh, in terms of uh, ethnically extremely diverse um, and skills very diverse. And people simply, uh, with the younger people, partly altruism, wanting to contribute. I always say to my children, they're much nicer than me. Uh, <laughs> I think this generation of millennials really does want to contribute and make a difference to their neighbourhoods. 
But as important, it was a more selfish motive, which was um, to acquire skills that would enable them to come and work in the NHS. Uh, and I don't know if you call that selfish or selfless. It doesn't really matter. Self-centred, if you will. Yeah, self but that's entirely reasonable, though. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, I applaud it. Um, so so the, the, the good news is there's lots of demand. My worry was and remains that because there was far more demand than I anticipated, the, the problem is we've got to move quite quickly now to create the roles in the NHS that will interest these people. And I think that comes to, to my second point that I've been trying to think through is what the barriers to volunteering are. And I think what you've articulated quite clearly there is mm. it's not a lack of appetite for volunteering. There are the people there that have always wanted to volunteer, mm. be it for what we, we mm. call sort of self-interested yeah. reasons. So what is it that is preventing the volunteering? Mm. Is it really the system itself that is having a problem mm. with trying to bring those people in? Mm. Is that because it doesn't know what to do with them? Mm. What, what do you think? Um, well, I think there are at least two and possibly three main barriers. The, the first is a very simple one, which is seen through the eyes of volunteers. Many people don't actually know that you can volunteer in the NHS. Yes. Um, which may surprise people, but, but actually it's true. I mean, uh, and to take an extreme example, during the mail campaign, I got an email from a doctor in a large teaching hospital, outside of London actually, um, saying, look, I'm fascinated by this. I would love to volunteer in my own hospital, but I don't know how to, or even if I can. That's really interesting. Isn't that isn't extraordinary? <laughs> and as you'll see, I'm not naming the hospital trust. <laughs> but um, uh, there's no question but that there, is a, that there isn't that knowledge base in a way that there is. You know, people know they can volunteer for the police force. They know yes. they can volunteer for Marie Curie. They know they can volunteer for Save the Children. They don't know they can volunteer for the NHS. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, I think, is the flip side of that, which is, um, does the NHS think volunteers are assets or liabilities? Yeah. Um, and I think the historic model doesn't work very well. Um, but it was pretty universal, which was um, either the charity or the friends of the hospital or the um, HR team recruiting volunteers into the hospital and then appearing on a very busy Tuesday morning in, you know, the Lord Nelson ward yeah. and saying, guess what, I've got three volunteers for you and a, a stressed, busy matron uh, or sister saying, I do not need these people. <laughs> um, and that's a paradigm that we're now shifting through help force, which is to actually say, shouldn't it really be the ward sisters who are recruiting the volunteers with the support of volunteer coordinators, who should be in every hospital and more than one, uh, and recruiting to roles that will include will improve the, the lives of the staff and the, the productivity and quality of care provided on the ward and benefit the patients. Yeah. And it, it's not that subtle a shift. It's blooming obvious, frankly, but it wasn't how it was being done on the whole.
And we do, in the NHS, have quite a, um, a hierarchical approach to an organisation, that your, your skills are valued on the band where you exist and your training, yeah. to bring people in who are going to contribute their time relatively freely. Yeah. It's very difficult for that, that hierarchy to, to figure out how to bring people in, adopt them, value them. Yeah. And you, you've got a lot more amorphous skills in there, and, mm. and how do we actually bring them systematically in? And mm. I think that's one of the interesting things that are the directions that Help Force has gone in. I think that's right. And I, I think, um, uh, I actually think this has to start at the top. Uh, I think if, and in particular with the Chief Executive and the Director of Nursing, uh, and I'm talking about acute trust, because we yeah. started, we decided we, you know, we should limit ourselves at the beginning. Uh, and so we decided to start working in five hospital trusts uh, 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 rather than any um, primary care trust or mental health trust. So we just took five trusts um, uh, in West Suffolk, uh, in Southampton, um, West Birmingham and Samuel, Northumbria, and the Chelsea and Westminster in London. And we, it didn't take us long to realise that if we were going to um, get traction uh, and change the way in which volunteers uh, worked. Um, firstly, calling it Help Force was really helpful. It sort of made people think differently. It was, it was a force of people who could help. Yes. Um, I think the name volunteer is great, but somehow this gave it a different, a sl different slant. And I think the term volunteer is one of the things that I, I, I think it'd be really useful to talk about a little yeah. bit later in this, because I think yeah, it's a bit of an odd concept. It's, it's, uh, it, it, uh, it's to be slightly provocative, it's a slightly Victorian phrase. Yes. Um, and that's not to belittle it, but it, it, it doesn't sit well with some people who would like to help. Yes. But actually don't want to volunteer. Uh, they just want to help. <laughs> they want to be valued in their own skills and time. Correct. It's not, it's not doing Correct. what you've asked us to do, no. it's what we can offer. Correct. Whereas other people love the name and regard it as um, a, a privilege to bear it. So I, you know, I don't think it's a yes. case of getting rid of one and introducing another. I think it's a case of thinking what makes best sense for a particular community. So um, what we realised very quickly was if help force projects address the single biggest worries of the chief executive, the hospital would take us seriously. Yes. And so we were very lucky. We, um, we, we, we asked Deloitte if pro bono they'd come in and help us think through the patient journey in a hospital, identify where, with these five trusts, the biggest blocks were in the patient journeys, or indeed the staff journey, and then ask ourselves the question, what could volunteers or helpers do to unblock that blockage? So it's quite a systematic approach. That's looking, at, uh, looking for the problems Correct. in the whole sort of patient flow yeah. and saying, well, how could a volunteer yeah. help yeah. solve this problem? Yeah. And suddenly that helped directors of nursing and chief executives to realise that we were talking about things that were measurable. Yes. Uh, and I think in the past, sometimes... Uh, when I was Chief Executive of Marie Curie, I would say, well, you can't measure the benefits of volunteers because they're about compassion um, and, you know, um, 
time and giving time that clinicians don't always have. This is all true. This is all valuable. But it doesn't turn on the adrenaline of a hard-pressed trust who are trying to deal with too much demand when they don't have the resources to supply the services. And I think the thing that really strikes me about that is those are the things that fundamentally impact the experience of patients going through a service. Correct. That's the thing that makes a service particularly good. Mm. And that should be the thing that drives chief executives. In, in, when we're running an NHS, we are not just running a factory that people move through. No. We are trying to improve the experience of people be, yeah. because their ongoing health will improve as a result of that experience. Yeah, well, um, well you know, you, when, when you very kindly sent me a briefing before. Yes. This, and you, you said you wanted to talk to me about obstacles. At, at the beginning, you know, what, what, what was the resistance? Yeah. And the answer is there wasn't any. So <laughs> it, it wasn't actually a case of chief executives should be thinking like that. They think like that 24-7. But what they'd seen of volunteering, not, not everywhere, yeah. but mainly, and I mean 90% mainly, was that it was um, admirable, compassionate, but it wasn't really solving their problems. Right. Um, I, 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 um, I'm old enough to remember the days when milk bottles came with milk and cream on the top. And I think that... Unfortunately, his, me too. Yeah, yes, and I, yeah. I think historically we thought of volunteering as cream on the top. Mm. What the chief executives were fighting for was to stop the milk going sour. And that's how Helpforce has tried to, sh again, shift the emphasis of volunteering. What can we do actually in the milk? Yeah. So let me give, can I give you two examples yeah, of, of things that I think um, show the difference between those two? Um, one I only discovered yesterday, but, <laughs> but is definitely cream. Uh, and one is definitely milk. So let's take bleep volunteering yes. um, as a really good example of milk where having volunteers, many of whom are young and many of whom aren't. Um, one of them was me, actually. I did it myself for about three months and thoroughly enjoyed it. These are, I raise eyebrows sometimes by calling them drug runners. But basically, these are volunteers who are saving nursing time by taking, uh, by going down to pharmacies in hospitals and queuing for the drugs that they then take back to the wards, which allow the patients to go home early. And it's interesting because they essentially are, <coughs> are volunteers that are coming in to um, compensate for um, hospitals that weren't quite designed with the flow of patients in mind. Correct. That's absolutely right. And, and indeed, with hospitals that don't yet, and personally, I think bleed volunteers will one day be redundant because one day, presumably, we will we have design robot will design to going home earlier. Yes. Because as we all know, what keeps you in hospital longest is waiting for your drugs before you can go home, waiting for the scripts to be filled. So um, that's a good example of milk. A good example of cream. I learnt yesterday that a hospital in the north of England has got volunteers coming in right now uh, to um, wrap Christmas presents for um, staff, to actually help staff. Right. Um, deal with one of their biggest worries over Christmas, which is how are they going to find the time? Um, because guess what? Our patients don't get well just because it's Christmas yes, Eve. Yes. 
How are they going to find the time to wrap the presents for their family and friends, and indeed for their fellow members of staff who they want to give gifts to? That's cream. But do you know what? It's fantastic for the health and well-being of is the it, staff. Is it cream, though? I, I would think no, anything that... If you're improving the retention of your staff by make, making their terms and conditions yeah. more palatable to them, yeah. that's milk as well, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You know, what's retention. worrying you? I'm never going to get round to doing my Christmas shopping. Yeah. yeah. And we've had bleep volunteers here saying to our staff, would you like me to go and pick up your dry cleaning? Because you know, they'll be talking to them and the nurse will say, I'm really hoping to go out this evening. And, uh, and volunteers will say, well, look, hang on, you know, do you want me yeah. to get your, you know, I don't want you to miss the date, you know, we'll, of course we'll help. So it's, yeah, yeah. And that's, all of that's interesting, but now we're moving into a time of integrated care systems, mm. where we've got, I was going to say, we've got an NHS that is going through fundamental change, but I mm. think that's been pretty true of most of the points of the NHS's existence. Yeah. How do we take... The stuff that Help Force has learned, mm. the, the stuff that the chief executives in the acute trusts have learned, mm. and begin to spread that out. Because the vast majority of health care doesn't happen in hospitals. You're so right. If we're going to impact yeah. on health, yeah. we're going to have to do yeah. it outside hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. How do we do that? Well, the first thing to say is, I mean, Help Force is, you know, just a, a, one of the starfish on the beach. Yeah. Um, and um, Which is an interesting analogy. But. Uh, and... Uh, 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 there are thousands and thousands of wonderful volunteer and voluntary sector organisations, um, both nationally and locally, uh, who have great skills in offering um, their, their services, uh, both in hospitals, but mainly in the community. And um, when I had the idea for Helpful, I hadn't quite realised how tough it is for primary care staff, in particular in the NHS, so the GP surgeries, to actually understand what services are available in their community. Yes. Uh, I was in a, a, a GP surgery in North London um, a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, two, two practitioners uh, running a busy service, uh, and they said, look, look at this book, and they showed me a book which had in the name of it 750 different voluntary sector organisations they could refer to. And they said, look, we've only got the space in our minds to remember three. Yeah. So how do we choose? And how do we know that number 624 is better than number 311? Um, so um, there's resource out there. There's a demand for it, and now that social prescribing is beginning, I think the introduction of link workers by the NHS uh, is wonderful, and this will uh, enable us to signpost better. Um, what Help Force can do to help, I believe, is to extend its learning network in particular, which highlights best practice currently almost exclusively in acute trust, um, into the community. Um, and let's be clear, Help Force doesn't try and run anything. It's not trying to set up a competing charity. What it's trying to do is to act as a support to the statutory sector, which is where we started, but also to the voluntary sector by highlighting 
best practice. And I, I see one of its roles as essentially being an information broker. Absolutely. It's, it's seeing where things work and yeah. trying to find other people with similar problems, yeah. similar, similar organisations, and saying, look, we can put you in touch with these people absolutely. that have solved this problem. Absolutely. Because every problem out there has been solved somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there are lots of fantastic places where you can learn about volunteering online and face-to-face. Um, you know, the voluntary um, services in every borough. Uh, National Council for Voluntary Organisations, Kivo, I mean, I could go on for hours. Yes. But what's unique about Help Force is that we're doing this really at the end of the day for the NHS and for the NHS only. We're, you know, we're really focused on helping the NHS access um, volunteer services that exist out there. There are volunteer, there are charities based in this hospital. I've been here six years, right? There's one very large national charity, whose name I won't mention, who's been based in this hospital for three years before I even knew about it. <laughs> and that, that's my fault. And it's also a problem for them. I mean, if the chairman doesn't know that they're in here. But that's because of the way the system works. Because the commissioners commission them, but they don't always tell the provider that they're existing in the hospital. We, we have a very, very complex system. Having worked in the NHS yeah. for many years myself, it's yeah. still, we were exploring the system that we all exist yeah. within. And whether you like the Lancet reforms or not, it doesn't really matter. But the reality is it did divide commissioning and providing. And um, this was one of the problems created by that, which is the commissioners knew what they were commissioning, but they didn't always tell the providers it was happening. Yeah. It's interesting going back to your um, equation that you started with. And I think that you, you put, I think you've highlighted a really good thing that Help Force can do within that, that mm. recognising that some of the barriers to adopting volunteering mm. and taking that capacity on was probably coming from the NHS side and its mm. lack of understanding of volunteering. Mm. And, and I think there's an understandable sort of interest from the voluntary sector about how Help Force as an organisation relates to them. Mm. And I can see that there, there's a real value in opening those doors to the NHS, mm. to that wider voluntary sector. And, helping them build those relationships. I think that's very well described. I mean, I do sometimes describe us as a broker. Yes. Um, I mean, I, one, I remember talking to um, the chief executive of another charity. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning it, actually. It was Jeremy Hughes, fantastic guy, uh, at Alzheimer's. Okay. And him saying to me, you know, we've got, I think it's nearly three million dementia friends now, but none of them are in hospitals, or very few. How do I get, how do I get trust? interested in these volunteers you know they're all over the communities but how can we get them into hospital trust and likewise in going to talk to gps which we're doing now uh, and talking to them about um uh, how volunteers can help them um it's they're just they're really keen to hear There's a wonderful charity called all together better who's been doing yes. some fantastic work with gp surgeries they're inspiring the way they've tried to redesign the concept of primary yeah. care and it's brilliant and you know i mean i enjoy talking to primary care practice about all together better and saying you know because that is helpful so there, we want everyone to succeed yeah <laughs> you know there, there are few enough of us uh doing this stuff and we need to leverage each other and, and help each other to do it and I, and I think that highlights what i think is probably one of the bigger challenges that as we are going through significant change in terms mm. of creating integrated care systems mm. creating primary care networks mm. how do we give those clinicians those commissioners those people who are at the top of the system 
the space to have a think about how volunteering will benefit them. Mm. Um, yes, I, I agree that a lot might look at volunteering and say, well, that would be nice to have, mm. but why is it a strategic imperative and how will we make that case? That seems the biggest yeah. challenge to me. I think that's, I think that's correct, actually. And um, Well, first of all, there always has to be an incentive, doesn't it? Uh, yes. So, and I think the incentive is as if it makes their life easier. As we were talking about earlier, you know, if... if um, uh, Pippa Nightingale, the director of nursing yeah. uh, at Chelsea, believes that having volunteers on the ward um, supporting feeding, not necessarily actually doing the feeding, but encouraging uh, particularly older patients to enjoy food, and talking to them and distracting them while they're doing it. Um, if she feels that, um, as we've seen in Morecambe Bay, there are more than 50 volunteers in Morecambe Bay hospitals, a brilliant intervention designed with the RVS, um, helping the physios get people back on their feet, making sure that their muscle wastage is reduced and getting them home earlier as a result. If they can see those benefits, it's fantastic. But I actually think almost more important uh, is we've been very lucky in... Um, uh, be, uh, being given a, a significant grant by the Burdett Trust for Nursing yes. to enable us to co-design uh, volunteer-led interventions with nurses. So instead of, and I think sometimes the voluntary sector could improve the way it co-designs services with the NHS rather than coming in offering to them a service which they've designed themselves. Uh, and I, 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 it's not always popular when I say that, but, but I, I, this, the commissioning environment we're in has shifted, I think, the way that some charities operate. Uh, You're certainly looking at a, as a sort of a, a purchase service model, isn't it? Which correct. I don't think was really the intention of commissioning, no. but it has definitely drifted I think it's that. the way it's gone in a way, and perhaps not often challenging enough, you know, to say to commissioners, look, that's what you want, but actually what... You know, I, I think we need to get back to the stage where charities say, that's not good enough. What you need is this. And we can tell you you need it because we've designed it with your staff and with your patients. Yes. And I think chief executives will listen then. Now, the problem again is commissioning and provision has been separated. So, uh, uh, but that's, that's something I, I that's changing. I think that... that Distinction is beginning to break down. I think with, it is. With like single providers bringing in yeah. those clinical commissioning groups, and I think, and I think that will be beneficial yeah. to us. Yeah. So if you take this hospital, for instance, currently we have eight CCGs commissioning our services. Eight. Eight. That's a significant area. You know, for one trust. So it does make it quite difficult to design volunteer led interventions sometimes that are integrated when historically those eight. CCGs may all say they want something or other different. But that is changing. That is changing. I might mention to you, actually, too, which I'm incredibly excited about. I've been asked by Sir David Sloman, uh, who is now the Chief Executive of NHS London, uh, to look at the London 10 top health priorities and to work with the boroughs, the mayor, uh, Public Health England and NHS England uh, to really think through how volunteering and the voluntary sector can help support the delivery of these outcomes, which are very wide-ranging. They range from reducing childhood obesity at the beginning of the journey to improving quality of air in the capital to making streets safer. And then finally, 
uh, to improving the quality of end-of-life care in the capital. Yeah. Um, so I think, I, and I don't think, I, I th- uh, it's difficult to measure whether Health Force's existence has helped us get there, but I believe passion it has, actually, to slightly just shift the way people are thinking about Health Force, to actually thinking this could be a serious... It's not about health force, I'm so sorry, about using volunteer support um, to recognising this is a serious asset for the patients, for the staff, and for a more productive um, system. I think that's really interesting because as we look at the um, sort of volunteering of the future and what that's going to look like, when if we have these fully functioning integrated care systems mm. that have equal partnerships between the voluntary sector, local authorities, the NHS, what this will look like in the future, and I'm really interested in the role that volunteers can play in the community-driven health. Mm. I think we have a, a quite a traditional model of public patient engagement mm. where the NHS would set certain priorities, yeah. then we would ask a community, do you agree with those priorities, yeah. and then we would use them. Whereas I think the volunteering really has that sort of that push power to say, well, these are the priorities that we would like to work on with yeah, you, yeah. and how we begin to harness that power. And I think what you're saying around London there yeah. could be just one of those test beds where we yeah. can begin to demonstrate something. Well, let's, let's take, a, again, let's take an example. Um, recently, uh, very sadly, a member of my family died uh, from terminal cancer, and we as a family spent a lot of time um, taking him in and out of hospital. Um, I would say sometimes necessarily, sometimes unnecessarily, where the specialist hospital was sort of summoning him in for yet another bloody blood test, mm-hmm. when actually he was in his last weeks. But um, uh, during that time, I realised that if you hadn't had a close family to support you, who would have supported you? But I also knew the answer to the question. Yeah. Uh, which is Marie Curie created um, uh, about 10 years ago, started working on a programme called Marie Curie Helpers, who were trained companions and very much um, family matched. So typically a Marie Curie helper uh, would have a family, one, and would be the the helper uh, companion for that um, individual and family through those last weeks of life. Um, and uh, the work that we've been doing in northwest London in Help Force with three GP pr- practices has absolutely convinced us that um, this whole concept of companions, a circle of companions, uh, could be of enormous benefit to pa- again to patients and to the system. Because if you're living on your own and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling breathless, there is a chance, if you have nobody else in your life, that you will go to the GP surgery. Yes. Whereas it could be that if you had a trained companion who you trusted, trained, notice, trained companion who you trusted and could rely on, who took the role of the member of fam- the family, the family you don't have, then it could be that they would lift your spirits or suggest you sit up, prop with a pillow and never go to the GP surgery. Uh, and I, it's kind of a no-brainer. And again, it happens. You know, Red Cross, lots of local charities, wonderful charity in northwest London called Community Champions are doing things like these. But again, the statutory services don't always know about them. 
Excellent. Well, thank you, Sir Tom, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Good luck, and I hope this wasn't too boring.